On this last day of Black History Month, a powerful new memoir sharing a story unique to Jacksonville. Good morning. We're live with you from Studio 2. I'm Melissa Ross, and this is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, a conversation with Nat Glover about his new memoir out this summer. You can join the conversation now. It's 549-2937. Then later, it's the return of NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. We'll tell you how local musicians can enter. That and more ahead. But first this morning, he's a community leader who served as the first black sheriff in Florida since the period after the Civil War. It's an inspiring journey as a young black man growing up in the then segregated city of Jacksonville survived the notorious axe handle Saturday assault by the Ku Klux Klan on nonviolent civil rights activists. He went on to realize his dream of joining and rising through the city's often blatantly racist police force of the 1960s. To breaking barriers, becoming the first black sheriff in the Deep South, elected twice since the Reconstruction era of the 1800s. He's put his story down on paper, and his new book is coming out this summer. We're pleased to welcome Nat Glover here in studio with more about his new memoir, Striving for Justice, A Black Sheriff in the Deep South. Nat Glover, good to see you. Thank you, Melissa. Glad to be here. And what are your questions and thoughts for Nat Glover? Give us a call. It's 549-2937. Emails to First Coast Connect at WJCT.org and tweets to at Melissa Injax. So your book is coming out this summer, and congratulations not only on the publication, but also your partner, the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives, is partnering with you on this book. That's exciting. That's very exciting and kind of personal to me because um, uh, I'm kind of a history buff, and uh, Fred- Frederick Douglass, of course, was uh, one of those individuals who— uh, fought against the racism, and uh, very courageous. And, of course, he himself was in the publishing environment and doing some editing and and that kind of thing. So he was one of the uh, greatest speakers of all time. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, working with the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives is very, very uh, uh, personal for me. Right. That's that's quite a feather in your cap. So people around town have known your story, of course, for many years, how you broke barriers when you became not only the city's first black sheriff, but the South's, the Deep South's first black sheriff uh, in Florida since Reconstruction. And I know that people for years have encouraged you to write a memoir. What made you finally decide to do it? Well, you know, um, I was, uh, of course, of people t- saying that, uh, you know, you are the first African-American sheriff e- elected since Reconstruction in the state of Florida. You really need to um, write your memoirs and tell people how that happened, you know, from a shotgun house here in Jacksonville to a historical sheriff. Um, that is a big deal. But uh, my uh, apprehensive and cynical nature, uh, of course, felt like that really sounds good. But I think sometimes people are just overly complimentary. Uh, So I kind of resisted the urge. And now that I've started the process and started to recall uh, those uh, incidents in my life, I am so glad that I finally came around to doing it, and I wish I had started 10 years ago now, Melissa. Well, better late than never, right? It is. It is. Now, in the book, you begin by talking about what it was like to grow up in Jacksonville as a young man in segregated times. Yes. What are some memories of that time that you can share in the book? Well, the thing that I remember most is... um, the house that we lived in. And it was, uh, of course, um, four of us uh, for most of the time and then later six. And um, we certainly, uh, two-bedroom house, had to to make do. And, of course, uh, uh, one of the things that stands out in my mind is that I 
happened to be in a neighborhood where there was so much going on. And I was uh, kind of hanging out with um, some of, of course, my neighborhood kids. And uh, they seemed to have been doing uh, a little bit better than I was doing. Um, it was four of us all totaling. Um, one of them had a car, the other had always seemed to have had a pocket full of money, and the other had a girlfriend. I didn't have any of that, and they were not going to school. And they would laugh at me every day because I had to go to school. So um, I went to my mother, and I decided I'll ask her about the possibility of quitting school and, you know, so I'd be able to hang out with them. And she said to me, uh, let me help you with that. If you're going to stay in this house, you're going to school. And I think that day, Melissa, hmm. she saved my life. And certainly at least kept me out of prison or jail. So um, that was a highlight um, in my life. And, and the other thing that stands out is... Um, I had two houses in my neighborhood uh, within two blocks that sold moonshine. That was this illegal uh, liquor, mm -hmm. and it was, of course, a violation of the law. And I saw police officers going in and out of the house but not taking any enforcement actions. So it was thought to a great degree that they were taking payoffs from those individuals who were running the business. So uh, that was certainly uh, not a stellar moment for law enforcement <laughs> in my mind. But um, I didn't know at that time that maybe one day I would be. <laughs> yeah, uh, you'd be in yeah, charge. I'd be in charge. But before you became sheriff, of course, you are known for surviving uh, the notorious axe handle Saturday assault by Ku Klux Klan thugs on nonviolent civil rights activists who were demonstrating in downtown Jacksonville to integrate a lunch counter at the height of the civil rights movement. You walked right into that whole melee as yes. a young man. Yes, I, I walked into it. Now, I was not one of the demonstrators. The demonstrators were from the NAACP youth organization, and I was not a member of that, but I was working at Morrison Cafeteria, which was downtown at that time, and of course, that Saturday, when the Ku Klux Klan and other racist groups came in Jacksonville to confront the sit-in demonstrators, uh, I didn't know anything about that, because I just happened to be inside working well for the most part that was a confrontation and each one of those clans persons had um, axe handles and some baseball bats and they confronted the demonstrators and 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 just ran them out of town well my boss at morrison came in and told all of the employees to leave, get out of town, because pretty much they had shut down downtown Jacksonville. And uh, he told us to leave right away. Well, <clears throat> my job was to mop the floor after everybody left. So I kind of uh, didn't follow the precise direction I waited until everybody left and then I mopped the floor so half hour later when I left I walked out right in the middle of those Klansmen and they encircled me immediately and they were actually calling me names asking me what am I doing here and hitting me with the axe handles and the bats. And I was really, really frightened. Now, there was a police officer standing right outside the circle, 
watching all of this as it unfolded. So I ran over to him half crying and said to him, please help me. And I can remember what he said to to this day, exactly like he said it. He said, you better get out of here before they kill you. And I ran. And I ran, Melissa, I ran all the way home. I was so afraid that I would not even look back. Now, when I got home, I laid across my bed and cried. And I cried. I was not hurt. I was not feeling any pain. Maybe I had pain, but it was subordinated by my shame. I was ashamed. I was embarrassed because in my neighborhood, you didn't run away from a fight. If you ran away from a fight, you would be labeled a coward. And if you were labeled a coward because you ran away from a fight in my neighborhood, that label would stick with you forever. So I didn't want anybody to know about it. And I did not want to tell anybody. And I did not want to be a coward. So I said to myself, that I would never run away from another fight. And I can tell you that has shaped my life since. That's the reason that I am today a rich taker. I don't gamble, pay cards, or shoot dice, anything like that. But anything that has a huge challenge to it, a big chance of losing, then it has appeal to me. So it Mm. shaped my life. And I guess that's the reason I took the chance to run for sheriff when everybody thought that I was crazy when I decided to do it and was able to make history in the state of Florida. More about that in a moment. But first, let's go to some calls for Nat Glover. His new memoir is out this summer. It's called Striving for Justice, A Black Sheriff in the Deep South. And it's being published in partnership with the Fed- Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. 549-2937, Lisa in Jacksonville. Go ahead, Lisa, you're on the air. Hi, I'd like to know if Mr. Glover would consider running for higher office because Florida needs him now. Thanks for that. Well, Lisa, I did run. <laughs> you ran for, for mayor, yeah. I did run After for, being sure. for mayor after being uh, sheriff, and um, John Payton um, actually uh, defeated me. I did win the first primary, but I lost in the runoff. And a funny thing about that, and I'm glad you asked the question, because um, even after I lost in the mayor's race, John Payton called me the next morning and Um, asked if I would co-chair his transition committee. And uh, I thought that was one of the most courageous things that a politician can do because he got a lot of pushback from his supporters. I mean, they even demonstrated in front of his office when he did that. But I, along with Walt Busell, uh, as you know, Walt was the CEO, former CEO of JEA, uh, actually uh, co-chaired his transition committee. You know, that's a nice example of comity and bipartisanship that you write about in your book that you're sad to see has gone by the wayside. You write in your memoir that you're appalled by where we are today in our political climate. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> democracy has always been the envy of the world when it came to government. And uh, of course, we have touted that and and we've had order, we've had good governance and and the two opposing political parties always, you know, gone in with different philosophies and different approaches, but we always had the, uh, the, the 
ability to come together and do what was best for the people. And now we seem to have left that and gone to this whole notion of adversarial confrontation. In other words, if if the one side says we should approach it this way, then the other side will just say, no, it's the other way. Not because it may not be an, uh, some opportunity here to come together, which was the way it's always been, where we will meet in the middle somewhere and do what's best for the people. Now it becomes the political environment it becomes so toxic that um, I think it just does not uh, happen in a way where it happens what's best for the people, but what is politically uh, advantageous. Five four nine two nine three seven. Charles on the west side. Hello, Charles. Hey, good morning. Uh, I just want to say first, Matt, you're up there on my pantheon of personal Jacksonville heroes. Uh, you're right up there, man. You're at the top. And uh, I just wanted to ask, what was the most, the, the toughest, most difficult arrest you ever had to make? Hmm. Well, I, I don't know um, if I can categorize uh, as the toughest arrest, but the two most challenging was uh, when I was sheriff and I had the, the incident of Maddie Clifton. And um, that was one that um, lived with me today. I can remember us finding her body, and um, I don't think I've been the same since. Little girl that was murdered. She was yeah. murdered, and, of course, um, she was actually murdered by one of her neighbors. And and uh, he himself was a young man and uh, a juvenile and was tried as a uh, an adult and was put in prison for life, which incidentally I thought was excessive. Uh, I thought a uh, 40-year sentence would have been uh, just as effective, but um, I, I kind of um, suffered through that after he was sentenced as well. And then we had the situation where the uh, we've had two uh, Part one of football players who happened to be uh, leaving uh, practice with their aunt, and the aunt was driving her son's car, who was a drug dealer, and the opposing drug dealers shot up the car with automatic weapons. And as I looked in that car and saw the two kids in the back that was shot up with those automatic weapons to the extent that they are the arms were actually broken like you would break a stick. It was um, those two incidents that um, sticks with me today. When you were elected sheriff, you brought an innovative approach to policing. It even caught the eye of the then president of the United States. What did you do differently? And what do you think the JSO should be doing today to make this city safer? Well, um, when I was elected sheriff, I had some challenges. Um, I didn't have much support from the uh, police officers. Uh, black or white had a few black that certainly were with me and one or two whites, maybe three whites. And so after I got elected, I had to... Um, try to make a difference in this city because um, when you are the first or you are the only of anything, you get a lot of scrutiny. So I had to make a difference. So I had to do some things that would make a difference. And incidentally, um, Melissa, after I got elected and Everybody was shocked to the, to the extent at which I got elected up, 55% of the vote in the primary. Um, I said to myself the night of my election when everybody was celebrating, I said to myself, I am not going to let 
the citizens of Jacksonville down. And if that meant I had to jettison some of my political people who helped me and that kind of thing, I was going to put the best people in place. And and we were able to do some things that caught the uh, eye of the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. People remember I used to walk the neighborhoods. Now, I was walking the neighborhoods to the extent that it caught the imagination of other law enforcement officers around the country, and you get a call from the president of the United States that says, I want to come down with my attorney general and walk through a neighborhood with you. That's exactly what happened. But um, that's one of the things I advocate uh, throughout, I've advocated throughout my career. And that is, if you're going to do something, you do it to a level that you will always leave a situation better than you found it. And incidentally, in the book, I also talk about leadership principles. And in those leadership principles, I I talk about how to lead people and how to effectively lead people. And so when president of the United States came down to walk through a neighborhood with me. I thought I had set the tone to get the kind of attention in Jacksonville that uh, it lives today, as a matter of fact. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but some years ago when I was working at the Dalton Agency, and by the way, the building the Dalton Agency is in is the same building that used to house the old Morrison's Cafeteria, that's exactly right. Where you worked when you uh, walked out into the middle of Axe Handle Saturday. So I was working in that building, and I was sent by my then boss, Michael Munns, over to JU to sit in a leadership seminar that you were conducting at the time. Absolutely. I remember that. And I remember two things you said in particular. One, you said when you're giving feedback to an employee, you have to give them the feedback sandwich. Right. You start with a compliment. Right. Then you give them some feedback. Absolutely. And then you end with another compliment. Right, because you don't want to kill them all. Yeah, so the feedback's in the middle of the sandwich. So I remember that very vividly. And then the other thing you said was, whatever you're doing in the community, whenever you're out and about, even if it's just going to the grocery store or dropping your kids off at school, someone's always watching. And you said... You are an ambassador for your organization, no matter where you are or what you're doing, because someone is always watching. So conduct yourself in a way that always reflects well on your company. That's exactly right. I remember that so vividly, and I've taken that advice with me ever since. And obviously, you've been successful with it. Well, you gave me some good advice there, (laughs) Nat. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Okay, so the book comes out this summer, and. It's going to launch in conjunction with Juneteenth, uh, Monday, June 19th, pre-sales. And then the release date will be Wednesday, August 22nd, uh, leading up to the anniversary of Axe Handle Saturday. And this is a fundraiser, by the way. Uh, You're going to donate some proceeds from the book uh, to your alma mater and where you served as president, uh, Edward Waters College, and also UNF and FSCJ and, and JU. Is that right? Yes. Well, actually, the book proceeds, all of the book proceeds will go to for scholarships. This is not a book that I am writing in order to um, mm-hmm. reap the benefits from. Um, one of the things when I talk about striving for justice, we have too many young people who have the ability to matriculate a college curriculum and Some of them, Melissa, could be talented people, I mean, to the point of being gifted, but they don't have the resources to go to college. Now, if you remember when I was uh, retired from the sheriff's office, I donated four years of my pension to um, a college scholarship fund and take stock in children, and I was able to uh, help 39 kids go to college. And I want to continue that theme. And uh, with this book, 
it will be um, mm -hmm. uh, able to fund uh, young people who are on Pell Grants. If they get maximum Pell, they will be eligible to get this grant to go to one of the colleges in Jacksonville, Florida State College of Jacksonville, Jacksonville University, Edward Waters University, uh, 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 either Florida uh, University of North Florida. So um, I want to continue that. And that's because I got a break when I was in high school. I got an opportunity to go to college on a football scholarship. And that set the tone for my life and the things that I've been able to do. And I want to give back. I think that's great. And I'm so pleased to be able to speak with you today. Congratulations on the book. And we look forward to seeing it out this summer. Thank you again. And thank you for having me this morning. He's Nat Glover and his memoir, Striving for Justice, A Black Sheriff in the Deep South, goes on sale this summer. And much more still ahead. Later in the hour, we sample the menu at New Atlantic Beach Hotspot, Salamaria 104. But up next, it's the return of NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. We'll be right back. Join me, Dr. Joe Servin, for What's Health Got to Do With It, a weekly program that examines where and how healthcare intersects with your daily life. Saturdays at 4 p.m. and Sundays at 9 p.m. on WJCT News 89.9. For the best music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, tune in to 89.9 HD3, the WJCT app, or jacksmusic.org. We've got your music on Anthology on 89.9 HD3. Welcome back. Well, NPR's popular Tiny Desk Contest is back, offering another opportunity for artists from across the country and those making music here in Jacksonville to submit their performance video. And they might want a chance to play their very own Tiny Desk Concert at NPR Music. WJCT Arts and Culture Editor Matt Shaw recently spoke with the Tiny Desk team. Well, after a roughly two-year hiatus, the world-renowned Tiny Desk Concert Series from NPR Music has been back in in-person action, inviting both emerging and established artists for intimate, one-of-a-kind performances at the desk of Tiny Desk founder, Bob Boylan. And with that, the Tiny Desk Contest has returned for its ninth year offering yet another opportunity for unsigned, yet-to-be-discovered artists to submit a performance video and enter for a chance to play their very own Tiny Desk concert at NPR Music and receive all the acclaim that comes with it. Past winners have gone on to tour nationally, headline festivals, and even win Grammys. The contest is back with a new panel of judges, many of them renowned artists in their own right. And if you're an unsigned artist, they're asking for you to make a video. This year's submission window is open until midnight on March 13th. Here to talk about the 2023 Tiny Desk Contest is creator Bob Boylan and producer Bobby Carter. Bob Boylan and Bobby Carter, thanks so much for speaking with me. Sure. Hey. Thanks, Matt. So the big news is that the 2023 Tiny Desk Contest is accepting submissions. The contest is open to all unsigned artists. Um, that announcement comes at a time when the Tiny Desk Concert Series has been rolling out lots of new performance videos, um, most of which you began producing um, sort of as the COVID pandemic has waned and artists are now out on the road again. It's been great to see artists like Soccer Mommy and all the Black History Month concerts you guys have been rolling out in February, you know, Lee Fields I just saw, which was incredible. Um, what I wanted to start with what it's been like after some time away from in-person performances in general you know, as big music lovers yourself, just to get this thing rolling again. It's so good to see people playing music uh, just a few feet from your your face and your ears and and seeing a crowd of people watching and reacting to music. You mentioned Soccer Mommy. She was the one who was to come in uh, around March of 2020 
when we all got that note, uh, hey, we might uh, be out of the office for a couple of weeks. It turned into a, a couple of years. And <laughs> and so uh, she, we, we, I called, wrote and asked her, I said, hey, you're, you're not on tour and uh, you're not um, able to come in the office back in March of 2020. Would you uh, do a, something at home? And she was the first home concert of like 350 we were about to do, which we had no idea. Uh, and then it was such a thrill for Sophie Allison, Soccer Mommy, to come and perform in front of humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely uh, seeing all the um, Tiny Desk concerts back and rolling, it definitely makes things feel a little bit more normal again. Um, so I was happy to see that. No, I, you, you you said the key word, feeling, and I, there's been a couple times uh, early on when we got back into the office where uh, we were reminded of that feeling um, we get when an artist is performing and, and, and just spilling their soul out behind a desk and Bob just, you know, we look at each other it's like, wow, I, I really, really miss this feeling because we know how uh, how lucky and blessed we are to be in the position. Right. And speaking of spilling your soul uh, from behind the desk, uh, this year's contest I wanted to get back to. Uh, I love to see the panel of judges yeah. each year. And this time around, uh, besides the two of you, there's Sharon Van Etten, um, Albina Cabrera uh, from the Mighty KEXP, uh, Baby Rose and Sudan Archives, who's going to be here playing in Jacksonville uh, at the Winterland Festival. Um, I'm curious about the judging process. No doubt it's a Herculean task uh, to watch all those videos, but then to narrow those entries down, are there passionate debates between the panel? Uh, do you all have to stump for your artists? What, what insight can you share about that process? It's, it's all love. It's all love. <laughs> We all hug each other all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I mean, we all have different opinions about what we love and there's no right or wrong. And we, we and so, yeah, the conversations, I mean, there have been years where where it was like, oh, my God, of course. And I, I think uh, Tang of the Bangas was one of those years where, mm -hmm. where everyone was on the same page. But more often than not, everyone has different feelings and opinions and we all listen you know, after a, a meeting with all the judges, we'll often go back and say, yeah, I didn't, when I watched that, I didn't think about that and go back and watch it again, come back in the conversation. So uh, it's a pretty cool process. We take it very seriously. I think that it takes a lot of bravery um, for someone to put their art out into the world and you know, expose themselves and, you know, in this case, thousands, millions of people. So we take it seriously, and and if we see something good, we're gonna we're gonna pine for them and hope and you know, try to give them an opportunity. So now it's uh, it is it's a, it's a pretty it's a peaceful process. But listen, it, it, there's a lot of passion in that room. And also, one of the reasons we pick the artists we pick, uh, they are artists who have played the tiny desk. They know what it means and what it takes to be able to uh, do something. And so when they're watching a video, they have that in mind, which is really key because. There may be some talented people out there that play a play something that would be hard to pull off in a very stripped down sense at the tiny desk. And so having that yeah. insight from the judges is really important. Yeah, totally. And there's uh, there is a lot, you know, uh, having them understand the judges understand this rare opportunity that people are um, that the contest entrants are participating in. Um, from North Florida last year, we had a few dozen entries, and I imagine we're going to see many more this year. There's been a lot of engagement on the stuff that we've posted about it. Um, and I wanted to talk about that life-changing opportunity. Can you talk about some of the past winners and what they've gone on to do? And also, I know even if you don't win, I think people should be aware of that simply entering can open doors, right? Many, many more videos aside from the winners get shared through NPR Music. Um, can you talk a little bit about... Um, you know, uh, that, those opportunities. Yeah. I think, uh, you, you, you start from the very beginning with fantastic Negrito. Um, he's won, um, how many Grammy Bob, couple Grammys. Uh, um, yeah, I actually don't know how many. Yes. He's a Grammy winner. Let's just say that <laughs> <laughs> he's a Grammy winner. Uh, we have, um, who else tanking the bangers, obviously one of our uh, most popular winners. They, they've been nominated for Grammys, uh, and all of them, um, all of them have gone on to to have a career in music, right? I mean, you look at Linda Diaz, who just hit the road. This most of the winners they they've gone on to do great things. Thankfully, yeah. And the um, there's there's going to be a tour again this year um, for some of the artists that uh, 
that submitted videos? Yeah, and the tour is yeah. pretty cool because what happens at these tours is that uh, we, we, we look at the city we're going to, we look at the entries we've got for that city, we often will maybe talk to one of the local radio hosts or whatever about uh, helping us figure out which are the best ones. And then four or five artists, bands will get up on stage in a given night. Uh, you know, the community gets together, meaning that, you know, fans of maybe a particular artist will come and fans of another particular artist will come. And all of a sudden in a room, you have a group of people who probably don't know each other, who's each of the bands have not heard the other band's music. And it's really this beautiful community affair that happens. Uh, we've seen musical collaborations come out of the fact that bands were on the same stage together at a Tiny Desk contest uh, on the tour. So it is, uh, it's a pretty cool thing. We're, we're kind of thrilled. And then, of course, the winner is on every one of those tour sites, in, in addition to all of the other artists that we bring on stage to the cities we come to. And, and in addition to the tour, Matt, uh, we also try to get you know, get our the entries that we like. We try to get them out there. So we'll each week. I believe there's uh, there's going to be highlights and videos that uh, we like on our website npr.org. We're also bringing back the top show series where Bob and I talk about uh, some of our favorite entries with some of the other judges. So there's tons of ways uh, to get some exposure through the contest. Well, I'd love to see the ways in which this series just continues to expand and uh, touch more and more people and more and more artists. Um, so Bob Boylan and Bobby Carter, creator and producer of the Tiny Desk Contest, thank you so much for talking with me, and thanks so much for the Tiny Desk. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Thank, thank you, Matt. You can find a full transcript of this interview plus information on how to enter this year's Tiny Desk Contest at jacksmusic.org or tinydesk.npr.org. Meets Beats. Well, UNF's Coggin College of Business is expanding this year with new course offerings for North Florida's booming transportation and logistics sector. Dr. Herbert Kotzab, one of the foremost global authorities in transportation and logistics, is the new director of the Crowley Center for TNL, as it's called, and also the CSX Transportation Eminent Scholar in Transportation and Logistics. And he joins us now in studio. Good morning. Good morning. Thank Good you. to see you, and congratulations. Thank you so much. It's very exciting. And I think UNF is very excited to welcome you. You're a global leader in this field of transportation and logistics. What attracted you to Jacksonville from, I believe, you were in Germany before? I was in Germany before. Before mm -hmm. that, I was in Denmark. So basically, I'm from Austria, native Austrian from Vienna, and uh, spent most of my academic life outside of Austria. Um, Jacksonville is the logistics hub of the United States. Um, that was uh, fascinating. And once I saw this uh, position, I thought, well, let's try, see how attractive I am, and here I am. Tell us about how the Crowley Center will expand UNF's course offerings to educate students to, to get jobs in this booming field? Well, first of all, logistics is a booming field and requires a lot of well-educated people. Um, they need to know a lot about the latest advances in transportation, in technology, data analytics. Um, at the Crowley Center right now, we are in a transition phase. Uh, so I, I run it together now with my colleague, David Swanson. And um, our, our goal is to, um, to develop, so to say, supply chain management to to become, so to say, energy-less, um, zero-emission-like, and so on. Um, the, new, the new course offerings are about, um, we have this certification for people who are in the industry and have a, maybe a different background and uh, come back to school, take three courses, get a certificate, and are well-educated. Wow, these are at the graduate level. That's our graduate level, correct. You know, in the pandemic, we all learned what, can go wrong when the supply chain isn't working well. So I think there's so much interest in this and how to improve it, how to continue to innovate. Well, the pandemic, uh, so bad it was for logistics, it was good because we were visible. Suddenly, we, uh, everybody saw what's the importance of it. Um, not only of bringing the goods to the people, but also, for example, bringing the vaccination to the people. So, uh, yeah. And we think of Jacksonville as a, a hub for transportation and logistics, because of the port and also because of the intersection of I-95 and I-10, Yeah. right? And yeah. That, that's been, we have that geographic advantage. That is great. And uh, in that way, this is, we see a lot of intermodality issues here. 
So basically using all the transport means, all the possibilities to bring the, the goods into the country or out of the country, that's important. Why do you love this field? What interests you about it? Uh, that's a good that's a good choice. May I may I tell the story how I got there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, I started in April 1992 at the University of Vienna, and um, my boss came to me and offered me a sheet of paper saying, these are my fields of research. And there were four. Three of them were already locked with a name, and one was open. And I said, well... I take logistics, and he said, good choice, because that was the only one. So I got into by chance, and I've learned wow. that many, many logistics professors um, had, that, uh, had that experience. What are the biggest misconceptions about it, about that, your field? Logistics is not truck driving. Logistics is not dirty work. Logistics is great work. Um, unfortunately, very often it is fire, firefighting. Um, nevertheless, you make people happy because products are there when they are required and when they are needed. Yeah, it's all about that, I believe it's called the just-in-time system of, of getting the product where it needs to go at yeah. the right moment. Right, that's what we call the four hours, the right product at the right time, at the right place, at the right cost. Um, that's yeah. very important. Yeah. What do you think about uh, the way Amazon, with its fulfillment centers in Jacksonville, by the way, has innovated and uh, or any of their... I logistics practice is part of what you teach. Yeah. Well, my heart belongs to retail. And you can say Amazon is retail. I would argue Amazon is already a logistics company. And I'm, I, I've heard, at least in Europe, that a lot of logistics companies are afraid that Amazon will go into this field. They have the resources. They're doing great. They have the data. And what they do and what others are maybe not so good in is the data analytics. So that's great. What Jeff Bezos has made, that's, um, well, I say chapeau. That's what we say in, in, in <laughs> Europe. Yeah. Now, the TNL program, which you're leading, is going to launch these new courses on the graduate level for the fall 2023 semester, including, as you said, a logistics and supply chain management certificate and an MSBA logistics and supply chain management concentration beginning this fall. That's right. Uh, this is because data analytics is getting more and more important. So now these students have a chance to get also into the field of logistics. And I would say logistics needs such people like that, knowing how to deal with the data, analyze it for better solutions. So bright students out there, this is a booming field. They should get in on this. It is. It is. It is. Wow. And as I, as I can say, the American students, great experience so far. I'm happy to be here. Well, I know UNF is happy to have you, and it's uh, great to see you. So congratulations. Thanks a lot. I'll see you soon, I hope. Yeah. He's Dr. Too. Herbert Kotzeb, the new director of the Crowley Center for Transportation and Logistics at UNF's Coggin College of Business. All right. In a moment, we sample the menu at the newest hotspot at the beaches, Salamaria. That's next. was excited to be having twins and then found out one had a fatal condition. She needed to protect the other twin, but new abortion laws in the state meant her doctor only felt comfortable saying this to her. You can't do anything in Texas, and I can't tell you anything further in Texas, but you need to get out of state. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on WJCT News 89.9. Next time on The World Carnival in Uruguay, the celebration has gone on now for weeks with theatrical performances across the country. Groups perform in elaborate costumes and makeup. Their one-act musicals are satirical, funny, and intensely political. We catch up with actors and singers in the nation's capital, Montevideo, Uruguay's carnival on the world. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. On the next Fresh Air... 
Understanding the Federal Reserve, what it is, what it does, and why inflation is a problem these days. We talk with Gina Smilek, who writes about the economy and covers the Fed for the New York Times. In a new book, she says, yes, the Fed is powerful, probably even more powerful than you think. Join us today at noon on WJCT News 89.9. America has only elected one president from the state of Georgia. Now age 98, Jimmy Carter is receiving hospice care at home in the town where he was born. His end-of-life decision is one also taken by more than one million Americans every year. But what is hospice care and who qualifies? We answer your questions next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. There's a new hotspot in Atlantic Beach that's winning raves. Salumeria 104. This is authentic northern Italian cuisine, and the restaurant owners have expanded up here to Jacksonville from two very successful locations in Miami. Chef Angelo Massarin and Chef Michael Ayers are in studio to give us a little taste. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. And I want to disclose I was lucky enough to be invited to one of your soft openings last week with a group of friends. Delicioso. <laughs> Thank you. It was so good. Uh, Chef Angelo, let's begin with you. Tell us about Salumaria. Salumaria is a very uh, simple concept. I focus mostly on the ingredients. And, you know, maybe you're not going to find uh, a well-presented plate, but we try to keep simple, focus on the ingredient and on the quality. Well, the quality is amazing. Uh, we had a little bit of everything Chef Michael, you're the head chef now, and you've worked uh, yes. at places all over town. Yes, indeed. So tell us about this menu and what drew you to the position. Um, it's a very exciting menu. It's um, authentic northern Italian handmade pasta, gelato, fabrication every single day. It's exciting from the fact of um, it's a little bit of cuisine that um, I haven't necessarily worked with exclusively. I've obviously had experience with things in the past, but running it as a whole concept is super exciting. I mean, who doesn't like Italian food? <laughs> exactly. Right? And this is a really delicious Italian food now. Chef Angelo, Salumaria has really done well in Miami. Why did the owners of this restaurant decide to open up a new outpost in Jacksonville? Well, I'm one of the owners. Okay. We decide as, um, you know, as, um, to expand our brand, and we start to look around. I think uh, one of the main reasons is, uh, you know, rent in Miami is very expensive. So let's start to look outside. When we come up in, uh, in Jacksonville, we didn't know how Jacksonville was. So we understand that was neighbor. We found that spot on the beach and uh, we fell in love. For my partner, because I feel like Miami 30 years ago. Hmm. And for me, really, uh, you know, a very nice neighbor. It remind me Italy, it remind me a community, and that for me is very important. You're located in the site of the former Ocean 60 restaurant, right? Correct. Right there on the mm -hmm. beach. So when you say Jacksonville is like Miami 30 years ago, on the one end, I think people like that, and then on the other end, they say, yeah. don't have too many more people come up here behind you now. <laughs> we don't want it to get I too big. I think, uh, you know, referring a uh, layback, yeah, more of a community life, feel. Yeah, more than a community feel. Well, from what I've heard, you've been packed every night since the opening. Indeed. At, uh, because there's just a hunger for good new restaurants in Jacksonville, I think. And this, that you've had, you've made a really successful entry into the scene. Absolutely. We're excited about that. Um, obviously, a big portion of our menu, too, is um, also concentrated on the salumi. And uh, charcuterie is having its moment right now as a very old way of eating that's becoming very popular again. And um, that is a, a good portion of our menu as well, too. So we are yeah. excited about um, exposing that. Yeah, you, People can order the, the charcuterie plate before their Certainly. entree, and that's really popular. It's beautiful antipasti starter. What are some of the other most popular menu items? Well, definitely the pasta because we yeah. produce all the pasta on the house. So and that is very particular. Yeah. We produce not only the pasta that we have on the menu, but we're going to be soon uh, ready to blast with a new special 
and we import fresh truffle every week. Oh, wow. Now, there were a lot of Italians at the soft opening. It, it, was a real, it had a real European flair, <laughs> the, the scene at Salou Maria 104 when I was there. And uh, the decor and the, the ambiance of this place, I loved it too. It's, it's, um, it's quite a vibe. I, I, you know, I'm biased, obviously, but I do think it's a really unique, beautiful place. And um, I'm just very, very excited to be part of it. And yeah. it's beautiful. Now, you probably have heard this, Chef Angelo. Uh, over the years, Jacksonville has gotten a reputation as a walk-up town. People kind of decide at the last minute to go somewhere to eat or to go out. But you guys are so popular, people are going to need to make a reservation, right? You need yeah. to make a reservation. Definitely a reservation out of, out of, you know, the best way to get in. And open table is the way to, to make the reservation in our restaurant. But, you know, we take also a lot of our walk-in, so we save always a space for walk-in. And we have a large bar, 16-seat bar, and mm -hmm. with classic Italian and non-Italian yeah. drinks. It's a beautiful place. Check it out at salumaria104.com. You will love this new delicious entry into the local culinary scene. Chef Angelo Massarin and Chef Michael Ayers, thanks for coming in and congratulations. Thank you. I'll Thank be you back soon. Yeah. Please do. And thanks for listening, everyone. David Luckin is our executive producer. Our producers are Heather Schatz and Brendan Rivers with Brady Corum directing today and technical help from Morning Edition host Michelle Corum. I'm Melissa Ross. Make it a great day. We'll catch you at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.